Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. In this episode's a first for me. I've never interviewed a chief Xbox officer before. Lots of C-suite executives, but never a chief Xbox officer. Now, Robbie Bach worked at Microsoft for 22 years and led a number of key projects, among them the development of Microsoft Office and the creation of the Xbox business. I'm telling you, we're going to hear some real inside information about how he got off of the ground and how he lost $5 billion. That's with a B. Having retired from the company in 2010, he's now a civic engineer with corporate philanthropic and civic organizations driving positive change within the community. Throughout his career, he has spearheaded massive transitions that continue to create an impact today. And we're so glad to have him. Robbie, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazel. Anyone with kids under a certain age has felt the impact of Xbox in their home. Greg talked about that a little bit, gave you a little bit of ribbing at the beginning. What was the process like and what lessons did you learn about the importance of strategic development? Well, I think the first thing, you think about Xbox and we have all these positive vibes about it and this franchise that's been built and this business at Microsoft. But I think the thing that I reflect on was how painful it was to build it. Um, creating something from scratch inside a, even in a startup is really challenging and really painful and difficult. Now you put it in the sides of Microsoft, which has a whole another set of issues associated with it. And birthing a business like that is difficult. And Oh, by the way, we're competing with Sony and Nintendo who had probably an 18 month to two year head start on us in that generation of video games. So I will tell you when I reflect on the early parts of that, I feel a lot of, personal pain. It was the most difficult 18 months of my professional career. No question about it. Um, Having said that, go ahead. I I was even going to say, I got to imagine even with that, you're probably going, oh my God, we did it. Oh my gosh, we we got it off the ground. Well, and in fact, because Microsoft was there to support us in the end, Microsoft was a saving grace because we were very well funded. And we made some mistakes. We had some challenges and Microsoft said, hey, go make it right. And we were able to do Xbox 360 and really turn things around. And to the point of your question, the things I learned that were critical, um, first, the almost um, transcendent importance of strategy. Do you really have a thoughtful, careful, clearly thought through strategic plan? And it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be simple. We didn't have a strategy with the first Xbox. It was ship on a date and make sure the explosions look great and everything else is whatever the hell it is. Yeah, yeah. Just make it gray and get it out, right? Yeah, basically exactly. <laughs> and, and with the second version, we had a strategy and that changed everything. The second thing, and I was it was great to listen to Beth talk. Uh, the absolute importance of culture. You know, I went to business school and we had classes on organizational behavior and people management and culture and la la la. And I sort of paid attention but not really. And I learned through that Xbox experience that building the culture of the team and the way people interact is so important to success. You know, the the first version of Xbox, um, we had probably the most talented group of individuals I've ever worked with. And the second version of Xbox, we actually had a team. And the difference between the performance of those two sets of people is all about culture. 
Yeah. So I got to ask you in an organization that size, being able to push it through, right? Just getting it through. And most people think when an organization that size, you've got all these resources, all these things, but there are people all over the place with knives and making you run the gauntlet and beating you up in the hallway and doing all the things. Who was your sponsor? Uh, because I, you had to have a corporate sponsor, someone in the executive team that was like saying, I don't care, do this, do this. Who was that? Well, we were lucky. Our sponsors were right at the very top. Uh, Bill yeah. Gates and Steve Ballmer were incredibly supportive of Xbox and frankly protected it from a lot of the challenges that you just described, all of which are, by the way, quite accurate, certainly in the first yeah. two or three years. There are a lot of people who wanted the Xbox business to go away. I will say that our trust from Bill and Steve was hard earned. We had very early on a really difficult meeting, which we call the Valentine's Day Massacre meeting. And we, they really challenged us on what we were trying to do. And we had a extended, unplanned three and a half hour meeting about what it meant to do Xbox right. And what got to the end of that meeting, Steve looked at us and said, okay, we're going to do it your way. And Bill and I will support you every step of the way. And to their credit, they did that through all the trials and tribulations. And so one of the things I will say, if you're trying to innovate inside a larger company, um, I know it's trite. You have to have sponsorship. Yeah. You have to have people there who are willing to support you and make it happen because it's going to take that at some point during the, the well, because other, there are these captains of no, even in small organizations, but certainly in bigger, huge groups like that. I knew that well at Kodak when I was doing yeah. it, I had to have it right from the top as well. Even though I was on the executive team, I had to have that because there were people who came out throughout the organization that just, just make you, as I said, run the gauntlet. Of course, I wrote a book about that. Um, right. Let me, but you, another thing you, said, I think is very, very insightful that there were a lot of people inside the company wanted to go away yet. It was beneficial for the company yet. The company said, we want to do this yet. We have to meet this competition, but there were people who did not want that to go through. Why? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Different people approached it with different motivations. Look in the first two or three years, we were a huge drag on the stock. Yeah. We were losing a lot of money. People inside mm -hmm. the company said, why the hell are we doing this? You know, the Wall Street was like Microsoft making hardware. This isn't their software company. This is a money losing business. They don't know anything about gaming, la, la, la. And, you know, it put a little bit of a lid on what, on stock performance. So there's people who talked with their wallet uh, and that's not unusual, right? I mean, in economics matters. Second, there were people who thought we were damaging the company's reputation. You know, video games is a wild and woolly place. It's not the orchestrated corporate enterprise. Not business. It's, I mean, it's business, but it's not, it's a business, but it's right. not business. And you guys were clearly a B2B company for the most part with B2C, but, but primarily you were B2B. That's right. And, you know, we had, look, there were games, you know, we have this long debate about what was acceptable content. And yeah. so there were people who just said, Hey, look, this doesn't represent Microsoft. And then third, there were people who thought we were a threat to their business. Um, some of the, some of the folks on the windows team thought we were taking gamers from windows and moving them to Xbox. And then that that was bad for windows and we could have a long philosophical debate about that. But, you know, so in, in, in most cases it wasn't devious, there were real reasons for them thinking that, but an organization that at that time had probably 50,000 people, you're going to have really important people who <clears throat> don't want you to succeed. Mm -hmm. And, um, you have to figure out how to work through that. Was there ever really inside of that, that, you know, all the support, all that you had, was there ever a dark moment? 
Oh man, I, I I was listening to Beth talk about the dark side. I had a number of really dark moments. I will tell you, probably the darkest was in May of 2001. This was about four months before Xbox is supposed to ship. Mm-hmm. And my work was tearing apart my personal life. I was working probably 18 hours a day. Um, I was rarely at home. I was traveling like crazy. Um, uh, the project was not going well. Um, it was literally going to be held together by duct tape at the end if it was going to work. And at two o'clock in the morning, I wrote a letter to my boss and resigned mm-hmm. and sent it to him. And the next morning, I, you know, it was a, that was a, you know, in a psychological way, a cry for help. And the next morning, my boss called me and he says, whoa, I guess things aren't so good. Let's chat. Um, And he helped me get through that. And then uh, subsequently, uh, right after we launched, I went and spent a bunch of time with two life coaches in, in Topeka, Kansas, Jack Fitzpatrick and Ann Francis. And they were amazing. And they helped my wife and I really think through strategically how our relationship, how our family, and how our work was going to go forward in a productive way. And it changed my life. And we we talked to Jack and Ann about once every three months to this day. Um, and and so one of the things I will say to people uh, on this on this call, when you need help, get help. Exactly. Uh, pride is a terrible thing. Uh, just let it go. Find people who can help you. Well, that's a good endorsement. I one I wasn't expecting because you never know where these interviews ever go. But, it, <laughs> it, but I thank I thank you for the you know your honesty there because you know I share that as well. You have to be vulnerable. You have to understand we we don't have all the answers. We're smart people, but at the same time, uh, we're not that smart. So it's always good to have that, right? So it's it's great to have that. Let me ask you. Tell me about the three P framework. I was reading about that in your background. And I thought, wow, that's pretty insightful. So talk to me about that. Well, when when we finished the first version of Xbox and realized what a strategic disaster it was, we said, okay, we got to do better with the second version. And the team went off and did an offsite. And we agreed that we had to give, we now had 2,000 people working on the project. So yeah. we had to give them strategic direction. And so we developed this idea that we called the three-pager. And the three-pager was three pages on the strategy for the next generation of Xbox. And that three pages had three things in it. It had a purpose statement. It had a set of principles for how we were going to run the group and operate and a set of priorities for what we were going to focus on. Purpose, principles, priorities. And that is not, that is what I now call the three P framework. It's what I wrote my book on. It's what I, what I talk on and lecture on at universities when I do that. Um, And it is a powerful yet painfully simple tool to force organizations who are dealing with lots of complexity to say, okay, no, 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 no. Get rid of the complexity. What are the five things you got to get done? You know what they are. So establish your North star goal. That's your purpose. Establish four or five principles for how you're going to work as a team and how you're going to operate. And then pick the five things that matter and then drive like hell. And the first version of Xbox was 20 things matter, drive like crazy. The second version of Xbox was five things matter push really hard. And the difference in performance was amazing. Did, what did, did you ever, <laughs> had you ever launched a hardware product before? That's my first question. No. no. Yeah. So I, so I got that. So with that, did you finally realize that most launches of hardware almost always fail? The first one. Yeah. It's, <laughs> look, one of the things that I learned and I've had some failures too. This is the guy who was the, the captain of Zune as well. So I've had some, uh, I've had some notable failures too. Uh, hardware is a really tough business. Yeah. 
Um, and, and there are more failures than success. So um, in the work I do now, I work with a bunch of companies who do hardware, but they are hardware, software, and services companies. Mm-hmm. And that is a different thing. And Xbox, actually, part of the reason Xbox was ultimately successful is we became, yes, a hardware company, but we also became a services company and, and a software company. And yeah. having that balance really changed the dynamic. How, how many, sh- how, what was the shipments on the first X, uh, Xbox? The, first, the original Xbox in its four plus years shipped about 23 and a half million units. Yeah. But the uh, first year, first year, oh, first, first year, gosh, in the first 12 months, we probably did three or 4 million units. Yeah. Well, that's still quite all. That's quite a lot. Cause normally on a, on a consumer, or consumer electronic product, I mean, having been at Kodak, I knew that I didn't want to ship more than 50 or a hundred thousand or 500,000. And then all of a sudden I sell 5 million and knowing well, full well, by the way, I had the same thing, knowing full well that when I was sh- we shipped them, I'm going to have a hundred percent failure rate over time. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and right. the, the advantage in our case, the advantage in our case is um, we had this thing called Halo. Yeah. And uh, which yeah. was, you know, one of the best selling video games of all time. And yeah. you had to buy an Xbox to play Halo. In many respects, that first year of Xbox was not about Xbox. It was about Halo. Yeah. And without Halo, we probably would have died. Did you know that ahead of time? Um, four months before Halo shipped, the gaming industry told us it was one of the worst games of the year. Yeah. So the answer is no. Um, and the team uh, to their, their credit did an amazing job, uh, finishing that product. And by the time we launched, we knew we had something hot on our hands. And then the, the pre, uh, the, the, the follow on product destiny, one of the largest, one of the largest, the spinoff of, of Xbox and Microsoft into Bungie and then yep. at destiny, one of the largest, biggest success stories, uh, sold billions of dollars in its first thing. And I, I, I told you beforehand, I was the voice <laughs> on destiny. One of the char- one of the main characters and it's amazing. So, it is, but nonetheless, man, it, is a, yeah. it is a, it is a truism that content is king. And in this entertainment space that we're in, having great content is what makes you successful. That's right. Content is king, uh, activations queen, and context is the kingdom right there. You got it right there. So what was the biggest takeaway that you had as a result of the launch and you're working about Xbox through that, through that whole period? What's the biggest takeaway you look back and said, man, I really wish I'd have done that. Well, I've talked to, I've talked about a couple of, well, let me take the Uber takeaway. Cause I've talked about a couple of specifics on strategy and culture already, but let me take the Uber takeaway. The Uber takeaway as a leader is when you're faced with a project and a challenge like that, the temptation is to want to dive into the deep end quick yeah, and put your hands on the keyboard and start typing out commands and start figuring out what to do and go. And if I had to do it over again, you know, I wish I had paused. Mm. And really step back and said, okay, let me actually just think for a bit. Yeah. And actually sort of um, um, delve into the depths of the difficulty and the uh, challenges we have, but really just to to step away from the keyboard in a minute. And, uh, you know, I'm an active guy. I want to take action. I want to do things. I like to execute. I want to go make things uh, change. But you have to step back. Um, as a leader. And it's the leader's job to be above the trees and above the forest and looking out over the landscape. And for me in Xbox, I was down, you know, not at the forest level, not at the tree level. I was down planting bushes in the, you know, yeah. digging in the roots. Yeah, exactly. And you just can't be there. 
Well, we say that at the C-Suite Network, our job isn't to make you the most smartest person in the room because we really can't do that. But our job is to help you be the most strategic. And I, I think that is really truly our job, isn't it? Yeah. And, and look, an executive, if you're if you're in the C-suite, um, you, you may have some functional expertise. You may have a certain superpower skill for sure. But ultimately, one of the things you're challenged with is strategic direction, cultural development. And you got to be able to do those two things and yeah. or have a process or a set of people who work with you who help you do those two things. And those are not you know, 1000 foot level things. Those are 10, 15, 20,000 foot level activities. And you have to be, you have to figure out a way to get those done. Yeah. And so did you meet the goals that you had in the, in the launch and then through the program, did you always meet them? Did you exceed them? What was your, what was your hit rate? I mean, if you were, um, I mean, were you a home run hitter? Were you a 500 hitter? What was it? Uh, the first Xbox was, was hit or miss. We were, I was, so we were sort of a, that was a uh, proof of life. That was, <laughs> yeah, I was sort of a, we were sort of a two twenty hitter who struck out a lot, but hit some home runs. Um, and so people wanted us on the team uh, to complete the analogy. Um, you know, halo home run, yeah. Xbox live home run, grand slam home run. Um, the business, we lost $5 billion in four years. How much now, again? $5 billion. Five. Did everybody hear? I want to make sure everybody hears that $5 billion, but that yeah. was part of the future of the company without question, right? Well, it, you know, Microsoft is one of the few places in the world where they would contemplate investing that amount, but just for, so we're clear, the original idea was for the investment to be about a billion and a half dollars. Yeah. So that's a failure. And, and, you know, you have to call it one of the things I love about Beth, you got to call what it is. And that was a failure. And the second version of Xbox sold, um, you know, almost four times as many pro units was way more profitable and doubled its market share. But, but Robbie, you say it was a failure at the same time because of 1.5 billion, but you, you pulled that figure out with a flashlight out of your rear end for the most part. I, you, I know you had some, you had some really good people helping you come up with the 1.5 billion and this is what we're going to do, but no plan works like that. Nothing starts like that. Doesn't end up like that. So do you look back and say, well, yeah, okay. It's a failure against that metric, but that was a bullshit metric. No, I actually don't think I, I, I'd actually disagree with you a little bit. Look, if, if when we're, when we're parsing, you know, well, it's going to lose 5 million, but it loses 10 million. I get it. Billions when, different when, deal. when we're, you're willing to invest, when you're crazy enough to be willing to invest 1.5 billion yeah. and then the bozo running the business loses 5 billion. It's a little hard to say, Oh, the assumptions were a little soft. Uh, yeah. And so I, look, I, I have to be honest. I that was, that's fair. That's that was, fair. If, yeah, it's a difference between five million and, and fifty million as opposed to five billion. That's a big difference. And I'm, I don't mean to laugh about it, but it is. If you, it's a zero, take away right. the zero, you know, and you could kind of put it in the same perspective. I'm just curious. How was bonus question? How was the bonus discussion that that year? Well, it, so it's a. It was you know it was super hard because yeah. the team had done the impossible. Yeah. Right. And the team had launched something that now had us in the conversation as a legitimate competitor to Sony and Nintendo. So on the one was hand, there a real, was there a realization of that, though? Um, I think there was. Yes, I actually yeah. think there was. I think at the end of the first year of that product, Bill and Steve certainly said, OK, we're going to keep going with this because 
there's a there there, and this team has really overcome a bunch of things. And I had that conversation explicitly with Steve, where he just said, you know, you guys got to go make it right, but we're in. Yeah. Um, so I, the, the, I don't even remember what the bonus was. It obviously wasn't a full bonus, but it also wasn't a, hey, you guys missed the metric by that far, therefore you get no money. People respected the fact that what we were trying to do was hard and that we'd had some areas of, of real success. Yeah. I was a focus executive with Microsoft at the time. I also had Apple as well. So I had to deal with Bill. I had to deal with Steve, especially Steve quite often would see him. How was the, how were those conversations dealing with Steve? Um, Steve was my, uh, was my skip level manager for the first year plus. And then for the next uh, seven or eight years, he was my direct manager. And uh, Steve was actually, actually as a manager, a great manager. He gave incredibly good feedback. He was really thoughtful, um, very strategic, and actually as a person, uh, independent of sort of the videos you see, a wonderfully warm person. Um, He has has real heart. Um, So I enjoyed working for him. Now, so let's just be clear. He was a tough boss. Yeah. Right. He had high standards. He had high expectations. He's one of the more competitive people in the world, and he hated losing. And, you know, so you, you had to, you had to live up to that. Um, Mm. but if you, if you had, uh, a little bit of self-confidence and if you knew your stuff, Steve was a great manager because he would challenge you and then respect the fact that you knew what you were doing. I'm going to ask you one last question. Then I want to go to the audience because I know they're going to have lots of questions, but you, you talk about you've become a civic engineer. What is that? And what's, what does it entail? Well, for me, a civic engineer is somebody who really engages in their local, state, or national community to try to help make the community stronger and better and to build resiliency into our community. So this could be anything from being a board member on a local boys and girls club to running for Congress um, and everything in between. Um, What I decided to do when I left Microsoft was to make that the bulk of what I do. And so I was already on some boards and doing some community work beforehand, but I decided to sort of double down on that. I'm on five nonprofit boards. Um, I do a lot of national work. Um, I do a lot of local work in the community in which I live. And it's, um, I will say, personally rewarding. It's a great opportunity to give back. Uh, But I get as much as I give. I learn tremendously from the people I work with. We have a saying here, the more you give, the more you get. And that's also, I, you know, it's, uh, there's a saying by someone, a famous actor who said, when you, when you get to the penthouse, you get to the top floor, don't forget to send the elevator back down for everybody else. Yeah. And, and look, I, in, in my book, um, so much of what we have to do as a country is about rebuilding our communities and finding that strength in our communities. And the only way that happens is when people decide to lead themselves and decide yeah. to get involved themselves and, and dig in and look what's going on right now. And with the black lives matter movement and the pandemic is just reinforcing that and there's totally. just work for us to do in our communities. And, and we have to buckle under and get it done. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for being a part of this uh, digital program and certainly all business with Jeffrey Hayes. It's been a pleasure. I'm going to turn it back over to the team. Before I do that, a lot of folks were asking the question, what, what, what did we say? I said, uh, we said content's the king. I said, activation's the queen. And then context is the kingdom. 
Context is the kingdom. Making sure you put that content in the right place where it can be viewed by the people that need to see it the most. That's the most important piece of it. So if all you want of it, to just, just Jeffrey, just to add to that, if people want to think about this, think about the evolution of Netflix. Oh, yeah. Netflix started as a mail order company. It yeah. then went to become a streaming company. Short, short lived, short lived, very short lived. It is now a content company. Yeah. And, and, and they do exactly what you talk about. They put that content in a context and it has put them in a completely different place. Yeah. Otherwise they would have died. Um, right. You know, because they did, they, they went from, they, again, they went from uh, Netflix. They were going to be called uh, Quickster. Quickster was the, <laughs> was the spinoff, which I said, Quickster, the CEO of Quickster would have the same, same shelf life that Bud Fox did when in the movie Greed, when he was named president of what Silver Star, Blue Star Airlines, whatever it was. And it lasted less than 30 days before <laughs> they made the switch to streaming and said, no, we're going to do it a different way. And this is how we're going to do it. So very good. C-Suite Radio. All right, Tricia, Greg, let me turn it back over to you. Thank you. Yeah, I think Bud Fox was, was Wall Street. Bud Fox. And, and it was, Okay. And also, if, if content is, is king, activation is queen, and Kanye for president. All right. So we, <laughs> we, have, we, have a, we have a question from Ken Campbell. Ken Campbell says, what changed in the Xbox culture that made it successful the next time around? Um, the biggest thing that changed in the Xbox culture is we decided to get behind one singular objective. Um, in the original version of, of Xbox, we had, you know, a hardware team, a software team, a, a, a Xbox live team, a game content team, a third party publishing team. And they were all kind of separate with their own set of objectives and actually their own P&L, as crazy as that sounds. That's a very Microsoft distributed thing. And we ultimately decided that um, there was one P&L, Robbie managed it, and we were all going to make it successful. And when we started to get behind a common set of goals, suddenly the Xbox Live team was working with the content team. And when the hardware team had a challenge that they couldn't fix in hardware, the software team found a way to fix it. And, you know, it's this goofy, you know, this is goofy saying, but teams matter. Teams are a force multiplier. And, uh, you know, we had to have some people leave from the original group. We had to add some new uh, elements to the mix, but we really formed an Xbox team with that second version of the product. I have a quick question of my own, and I'm going to switch it over to Tricia. My question is, is look, you know, a lot of people are, are listening to this call and saying, this guy launched Xbox with unlimited Microsoft resources. Mm. They could buy small countries. In their respective businesses, all the folks are saying is like, I don't have Microsoft's resources, and I got to, and you're telling me to go out and take that mountain, it's not that easy, Robbie Bach. And your reply is what? Um, my reply is, of course, it's not that easy. Um, I, I have deep respect. I'm a small business owner that's owned a, a small little business for five years with another friend of mine, and we've lost money for five years. We're struggling. We're just, we're just about to get to break even, and it's taken a lot of hard work. So I, I'm super sympathetic. Uh, the, the thing I would tell people is there's no easy um, having unlimited resources at Microsoft actually made our job harder in a few places. We were lazy. We, we weren't disciplined. We didn't make hard choices. We didn't make trade-offs because we were well-funded. Um, startups have the reverse problem. They don't have enough funds to do what they need to do. And that is a huge constraint and a huge problem, one I'm deeply respectful of. But at the same time, startups are forced to make choices. 
Netflix wasn't a startup even by the time they made the switch. But when you turn off a business like mail order and turn on streaming and just say, we're in the boats, here we go. That's a brave, difficult decision. And they did it because there was resource constraints and they had to make trade-offs. So um, I don't think there's a one is easier than the other. It's just a different set of challenges and a different set of issues you have to deal with. Great questions. Daniel Huberry and uh, Mark Ostrick both have questions that I think I can dovetail into that, Robbie. Um, what, it, you know, if you had to do it all over again, what would be that top two things you would do differently? And, and Mark, you know, tied in, can you take a mental health break when you're the owner of a small business? Yeah. So to the, to the first question, I talked a little bit about stepping away from the keyboard a bit. The second, the other thing I would say I would do different personally is I did not delegate real well. And I, um, look, they put a guy in charge of Xbox who does not play video games and has no technical training. Um, that was a serious handicap. So I was making video game decisions on technical issues without any background in it. And so if I had to do it over again, one of the things I would do is recognize my superpowers, recognize my weaknesses, and delegate in the places where I needed support from other people. It turned out I had plenty of talent on the team. And in the second version of Xbox, once I did that, uh, the team really uh, proved itself. Um, so that's the answer to the first part of your question. The answer to the second part of the question is, I'll go back a little bit to the conversation earlier with Beth. Um, Look, don't let the, the three characters blind you to the fact that you need to figure out a way to have a mental health break. Um, there is no job where you don't need it. And I, I hate saying that to people because I know people are working like crazy and working their butts off and owning a small business is, is difficult. But you have to find some way for your mental health. You just do. And it doesn't have to mean, oh, I'm going to take you know two weeks off. It's all right, I'm going to be disciplined about working out for this hour or half hour every day. Or there's a break I'm going to take, or I'm going to take my dog for a walk in the evening and just and just let myself be, or I'm going to meditate, or I'm going to do yoga, whatever it is. But as a leader, it doesn't matter the size of the company or how bad the situation is, you gotta have that because you won't be your best self unless you do. Mark Boundy has one for you. Mark Boundy, you talk about organizations being adaptable and agile. Is that the competitive advantage for 2020 and on? And what does a leader change in their company to enable that agility competency? A really good question. Um, look, I think uh, agility is one of, uh, of, a, of a series of skills that are very important for an organization, in particular in times of change. But I will say this, there's this balance point. I talked earlier about the, the 3P framework. Purpose is at the core of that framework. What is your North Star? Like if your North Star is changing every day, if you think agility is changing the target every day, you're gonna have a problem because your team's not gonna actually get there. So for me, there's this balance between having a long-term purpose, a place where I wanna to get to, a place where the organization needs to get to, and then having the agility to adapt to circumstances as they go. And we're certainly seeing a lot of that right now in the COVID era. The businesses that are being successful are adapting. Um, you know, if you were reliant on retail and physical retail, you're suddenly learning that your website and online sales is the secret to oxygen and you're figuring out how to take advantage of it. And so there's a balance point there that that you have to find. Greg, you, you had a second aspect to that question. Just remind me. I got to scroll to it. Let me see. It was a Mark Bound. He asked two part questions. I would have 
Hey, to take the SAT under that guy. Or here it is. What does a leader change in their company to enable that agility competency? Yeah, and, and I think the thing you have to you have to work with people on is um, people have to understand what the plan is. So you have to really spend a lot of time to communicate the plan and make sure people are rock solid on it. And then you have to be realistic and tell them, hey, look, um, there's going to be times when we're going to shift. And I'm always going to tell you why. I'm always going to explain it. It's not going to be random. But when we have to shift, I'm going to call it out. And we're going to say, this is a shift in strategy. This is a change in what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is why we need you to, to rethink it. I think what happens in most organizations, the difference between an agile organization and a random organization is somebody doesn't explain why the changes are being made. And, and I think you really need to spend some time communicating with people so they're informed. Transparency is a wonderful thing in that context. The quick one. So when you were already tasked, you were tasked to go out and sell the Xbox, was there a goal set up and, and say, so what, we need you to sell 500,000 units because that'll please Wall Street. And when you, uh, and you got that from, from, from Steve and Bill, and then when you got that 500,000, we were like, that is just unattainable. And how would you relay an unattainable goal back to your bosses without making you seem overly negative, but realistic? How, how, would, how do you speak to your bosses? Can you just explain how you speak to your staff? How do you tell your bosses, like, look, let's be serious. Yeah. So in fact, in our case, the issue wasn't number of units sold. It was really more market share and position in the market. And I, I know mathematically those two things match, but in a video game console generation, it's tough to, to know how big the generation is going to be. So our math was, how do we get to 20%? You know, if we're not 20% market share, nobody's going to take us seriously. So we got to get to 20%. And so we had, you know, again, really frank discussions with Bill and Steve about what 20% meant. You know, here's some thoughts on units. Here's some thoughts on, on what Sony and Nintendo are going to do. Here's some comparisons with what's gone historically. What I said earlier about communicating down applies just as much as it does communicating up. I spent a lot of time making sure Bill and Steve knew what was going on, the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you can't be transparent with your boss, you have a problem. And the good news about Bill and Steve is they never punished anybody for transparency ever. Not to my knowledge anyway. When I went and said, hey, we got this problem, they'd say, okay, well, how are we going to fix it? Um, and so I think there's a, there's a faith that has to come with being transparent that has to be earned a little bit. But if you can find that faith with your employees and you can find that faith with your, your managers, transparency is, is a really cool thing. I think we have time for one more quick question. And I love Lance Allen is uh, helping us geek out a little bit in terms of, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality. Um, you know, how far are we out from having whole full virtual worlds? And Bill Wallace wants to know if you're running for public office. So there's. A <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, the virtual world discussion, people have had a long um, discussion about virtual reality, what the industry now calls augmented reality. Um, I actually think the, the technology is going to be pervasive, but you, I, I'm not a big believer that we're going to create these separate worlds. I believe what's going to happen is that augmented reality technology is going to infuse itself into the things that we do, but it will not be this separate place that we go. So as an example, if you want to, this is a ridiculous example, but if you want to train a crane operator, how to use a crane, how do you do that? Well, if you do it in real life, you destroy things. 
But if you use augmented reality, you can actually physically train somebody to do something. And then when the time comes to do it in real life, they're ready to go. And so I think you're going to see a lot of that happen over the next five to 10 years. And it's going to happen more in the business world than it is in the entertainment or video game space. And virtual reality is going to be more important as a business tool than it will be as a, as a gaming technique. Um, as to the running for office, I made a, my purpose statement is to empower and, and inspire an army of civic engineers. So my job is not to be a person who runs for office. My job is to inspire other people to want to get out in their community and do things. And so I made a really explicit decision in 2010 that I didn't want to run for office or do something like that. But instead, what I wanted to do is work as a community member to try and inspire others to, to enable them to, to help the community get better. Serious answer to I know what was a little bit of a, of a joke question, but it's, it's, uh, it's important to understand the difference. You know, what, I got to ask you one more thing, Robbie, and I know we're, we're over our time, but I just think it's important about transparency because a lot of people think transparency, when you have these transparent conversations, sometimes you throw people under the bus, but it's not that at all. It's never perceived as being thrown under the bus by real great leaders, in my opinion. I, look, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, there are places where being transparent gets you fired. That's a fact. Yeah. Uh, my response to that would be um, not to be a little too blunt, good riddance. Yeah. Um, if, if that's the way the organization works, maybe you don't want to be at that organization. Right. Um, I do some work with a company called Sonos, which is a really cool Wi-Fi speaker company. Very, very good company. Nice, nice great, products. Great products. Great product. Great company. I'm on their board. And transparency is one of their primary principles. And I came from Microsoft, which you know, in a good day was semi-transparent, just to be fair. Um, I think that culture has changed at Microsoft now under such as well. Um, Sonos is one of the most transparent places I've ever seen. And it was a little bit of a shock to me. And I converted. I, I completely converted. I am now a true believer. And I'm I've good. seen it work in that company. And it is, uh, it's powerful what it does. It's hard. It's not easy. Mm. But without question, but if you have a transparent organization, I'd much rather be in a transparent organization than backstabbing and the stuff that you normally see in corporate politics and corporate life and, and in business in general. And I, I just like it to be able to go up to you and say, Hey, Robbie, that didn't do, you didn't do well last quarter. You know, like we all know that it's like, it's like when you're playing football and if we're all playing football and I'm the quarterback and I got, I just got sacked and I realized, Hey, you missed your block. I want to have that conversation. I want to have that conversation. Don't do it again. You know, you know it's, it's, um, I've talked a little bit about this. It's like having the conversation where you're going to give somebody a tough review. The honest answer is avoiding it, talking around it, using euphemisms does not help them. And they know, and they know it. And 99% of the time, the person's going to look at you and say, you're right. Thank you. What can we do about it? And it doesn't feel that way, but I promise you that's what, what will happen. And, and, and I've had to learn that. That's been a hard lesson for me. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.